0: the New American Standard Bible, Acts 11, 27 through 30. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the Roman world. And this took place just a few later in the reign of Claudius. And in response to that word, In the proportion that any of the disciples in Antioch had means, each of them determined, free will offering, they decide how much, to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. In other words, in and right around Jerusalem. And this they did, collecting the money and sending it south to Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, in charge of Barnabas and Saul, the two teaching pastors there at Antioch Bible Fellowship, uh, to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. This morning we're going to talk about the difference between Old Testament tithing under the Mosaic law and New Testament grace-giving. And we're going to see in that context an amazing, talk about miracles in the book of Acts, we're going to see an amazing miracle, really, uh, of generosity, uh, an amazing example of superlative giving in the midst of a need at home when you perceive the need somewhere else is even greater than yours. And so uh, I think we'll learn some things about giving, hopefully that can make our giving more more biblical and more pleasing to God. Uh, talking about giving, boy, those who serve in the active military and everybody in that collage is somebody we know personally or somebody here is very close to. Uh, we always want to pray at the beginning of our study uh, for teachability in troops and peace officers and firefighters. And so uh, let's pray in that direction this morning. And uh, Matt Sanford, pray for teachability and just uh, for the troops and uh, for uh, the spirit to work this morning in here, okay? Pray for the teacher this morning that you give me uh, just a clear a mind and a pure heart as we open this passage that's maybe not as spectacular as some of the events we've been reading in the book of Acts, but uh, that when we think about it is really uh, a, an evidence of supernatural work uh, of your grace in people's hearts to make them so generous. And I, I know that it's it's uh, more blessed to give than to receive and help all of us to be less stingy and more uh, willing to give of ourselves and our means uh, to your your kingdom uh, to your glory we pray in Christ's name amen. well you know two weeks ago uh, I did a top five list and the reason we do these top five lists is to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Because, I mean you can't understand the Bible unless you're using abstract thoughts. so two weeks ago, I did uh, Top 5 Reasons James Mitchell is a world-class youth minister. And, uh, of course, he didn't hear it because he was helping with uh, the super summer skating trip, which was great, no problem. But then last week when James filled in for me, he did a Top 5 list, Top 5 Things Pastor Brad thought last week as he began his Top 5 list and realized James and Shauna had left the room to go roller skating with the children and the teenagers and would not be in the room to hear it. That's what his top five list was last week. So since I've already done the top five reasons two weeks ago, I'm going to give you five more reasons James Mitchell is a world-class youth minister. Uh, In May, James climbed Mount Everest in only ten minutes, which is a record. And that includes the eight minutes he spent building a log cabin halfway up the mountain. That's moving, man. Number two, many great Americans consider James to be their personal hero. These include the Reverend Billy Graham, former First Lady Laura Bush, and SpongeBob SquarePants. He was quoted in a recent article mentioning James, my name. Number three, James is such a deep thinker, I know Hayden will get this one. James is such a deep thinker, his favorite number is 3.141592653589. Which is pi out to like 10 decimal points. I don't mind explaining the jokes. Uh, number, number four, James is the only youth minister in Duncan who can literally make a slinky go up a flight of stairs. Not easy. And hold your applause is the last one. The final reason this week, there may be more coming. James Mitchell is a world class youth minister is the Grinch stole Christmas, but James Mitchell made him give it back. Okay, we're looking at the book of Acts and, you know, we typically go through books sequentially, not every time, but usually it's kind of what we tend to do. And when we finish a book, I always, uh, you know, crave that all of us can kind of think through the book, especially if we spent over a year studying it or something. And so, uh, you got 28 chapters and it's a long narrative and it's a lot of, a lot of detail, right, Shelby? But uh, there is a cool way to remember the essential content of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And it's just a memory aid, Ben. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And if you remember the letters in that statement, they line up with the the essential content of the chapters in the book of Acts. We're going to finish, Lord willing, chapter 11 today. And, Lord willing, start chapter 12 next time. So let's look at Jesus is alive. That's the first 12 chapters. Chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. The Lord dies for the sins of the world. Three days later, he's resurrected Forty days after that, he ascends to heaven, right? And chapter one of the book of Acts talks about the ascension of Christ. Chapter two is the establishment of the church, the New Testament church. We're going from Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church. They're not the same thing. Old Testament Israel was a glide path to the Messiah. And then kind of the surprise ending of the Gospels, especially Matthew, the most Jewish gospel is, hey, guess what? Hugh, uh, The Jewish Messiah is also the Savior of the whole world. And based on that reality, the New Testament church is found in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. In chapter 3, we see the salvation of a lame beggar. Especially early on, God allows the apostles to do some very unique kind of miracles, Shannon, to kind of underscore that he's in the midst of all of this stuff, this New Testament church he's building. And there was this guy who had been begging in front of the temple for decades. And Peter and John, uh, through the power of God, uh, deliver him from that. And he comes to salvation in Jesus. And that really raises a buzz in the city of Jerusalem. It really gets a lot of people's attention, including the powers that be, which leads to chapter four, the first persecution against the church. Peter and John are held overnight and told not to tell anybody about this Jesus, the Messiah person. So that's Unleashing a persecution. Jesus ascends, establishment of the church, salvation of a beggar. Unleashing a persecution against the church. Jesus s sin in the church. Nothing worse than external opposition is internal corruption in the church. And, and Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. But when uh, there's major, obvious, moral, public scandal in the church, it it undermines our credibility, and we have the Ananias and Sapphira episode there. So that's Jesus is alive. I.S. chapter 6, we see the influence of devoted deacons like David Emerson or Mike Palavik. Uh There's a problem with doing some of the ministry that needs to be done, and uh, the apostles decide to delegate that work to the first seven deacons, and so the work continues uh, thanks to them getting their hands dirty. Chapter 7, we see Stephen stoned to death. Remember back in chapter 4, we get the persecution started. And the first person to get killed for their Christian faith was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Very, very famous episode and one of our biggest heroes in the history of the church. Uh, Now we have Jesus is alive. Uh, Chapter 8 is abroad with Philip. Everything's been happening in the city of Jerusalem, but God... And Jesus gave the commission to go in all the world. So how's this going to happen, Sherry? But it kind of gets reinforced by the persecution. When the heat gets too intense in the city, the Christians are forced to spread out. And we see Philip sharing the gospel in Samaria. What did Jews think about Samaritans? They like them, hated them. God loves people we would love to hate. And i have got to remember that. And then in Gaza, Philip ministers too And explains Old Testament prophecy about Jesus to an Ethiopian government official. So it doesn't matter what color your skin is either. You can be part of this thing. Uh, In chapter 9, Saul, better known later as Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's a Christian persecutor, comes to faith, life, eternal life, comes to Saul. Paul, in chapter 10, we see Peter breaking the uh, paradigm of the church because he goes to a Gentile household. He's a good Jewish boy. He's eaten kosher his whole life. But before it, Peter is sent to share the gospel with a Gentile household, and no uh, serious Jew would even enter a Gentile house. There are spiritual cooties in there, don't you know that? Uh, God indicates to, to Peter, we got a whole new thing here. It's not one nation. Everybody's supposed to come to Israel, pointing to the Messiah. The Messiah has come, made the payment. Now it's an international body of believers of all nations, all cultures, colors, and countries and so we see the importation of salvation to a Roman soldier and his Gentile family and friends in chapter 10. Uh, the Christians in Jerusalem just can't believe it's that easy. The early church was pretty much convinced Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so, sure, Gentiles can come just like the Old Testament. If you want to become part of us, you've got to come and become one of us. You've got to embrace the Old Testament law, submit to ritual circumcision if you're male, and get... Am I done already? No, I'm just getting. I'm just getting started. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go for another forty minutes at least. Um, they were pretty much convinced that since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the way Gentiles could be saved is number one, convert to Judaism, and then two, believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. But God had shown Peter he could just share the gospel to Gentiles; they could believe right where they were. God will save you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. He's going to change you. Um, and so in the aftermath of Cornelius coming to faith, there's a big debate, and Peter has to validate that God, in fact, and verify that God had led them to do this and that Gentiles who believe are just as saved as Jews who believe because the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. And that's the big thing that happened in chapter 11. We saw that a couple weeks ago. We're going to finish the end of chapter 11 today. And Lord willing, next week, whoops, let's oh, skip that. Uh, e stands for the execution of James. We saw Stephen, right, Danny, get stoned, uh, killed for the faith in chapter 7. Next week, we're going to see the first apostle be arrested and suffer capital punishment, the execution and slash the escape of Peter, execution of James, the escape of uh, Peter. All right. Here's what chapter 11 looks like. And as I've said, we're going to finish chapter 11 today. Uh, we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. But first we saw the big thing that happens in the chapter is Peter validates salvation by grace through faith in Christ. For even Gentiles that believe, even little boys that believe, little girls, women or men. Then we saw a couple weeks ago the origin of uh, the church in Antioch, about 250 miles north of Jerusalem, and the title Christian. And today we're going to look at grace great giving by the Christians in Antioch to help the Christians in and around Jerusalem. Down there, there that is. Okay, see, I knew that. That's execution, James. Now, let's look at these verses. Superlative New Testament giving, breakdown like this. First, we're going to see the New Testament prophet Agabus from Jerusalem comes to Antioch Bible Fellowship, or it might have been First Baptist Church of Antioch, whatever they called it, uh, and predicts an empire-wide famine. So we've got a crisis on the horizon, right? That's number one. Number two, uh, Luke tells us, yeah, the prophecy was fulfilled literally uh, during just a couple of years later, during the reign of Bill Clinton. I mean during the, the reign of the Emperor Claudius. This is a real guy, real Roman emperor. Look it up in your ancient history. We're talking about real people, real events, real uh, uh, places. And then we're going to see really what I think is the heart of this passage and what I want to emphasize today. The believers in Antioch Bible Fellowship, and I call it Antioch Bible Fellowship tongue-in-cheek because our church is tangled with Bible fellowship, but I don't think they call it necessarily Antioch Bible Fellowship. They're going to proactively give money for the believers in and around Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. Okay, Look at uh, first verse 27 and the first part of verse 28. Now at this time, uh, at this time is... Somewhere between the spring of 43 and the spring of 44 AD, okay, at the time when the church in Antioch is just really getting going and Paul and Barnabas are the teaching pastors there as we read previously. Now this time, at that time, some prophets, New Testament prophets came down from Jerusalem. Now Carol's a smart lady, she's wondering if you're in Jerusalem and you're going to Antioch, aren't you going up? Text says they're going down. How's that happen? They're going down elevation-wise, because Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. So everybody always goes up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction they're coming from, and they go down to wherever they're going in that sense. So at this time, somewhere between spring 43, spring of 44, Paul and Barnabas were leading the church in Antioch. Some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began in a church meeting. With the believers began to indicate by the Spirit, so this is actually going to happen, no doubt about it, there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. Now the word that, uh, in the original cosmos that can refer to the planet, or all the people on the planet, is cosmos. We get cosmology from that. This is a different word, okumene, which typically refers to a region of the world, and the Romans referred to the areas they controlled as the civilized world. So everybody else is barbarian, so he's using the language of the day. He's not saying the whole globe, but the Roman world. Uh, a couple of things. we got, uh, we got apostles and prophets in Jerusalem. And we got some prophets from Jerusalem coming to, to Antioch. A prophet is someone who receives direct, divine, infallible revelation. And in my opinion, since the completion of the New Testament which is propositional, written, inerrant, infallible, direct propositional revelation, we don't have prophets anymore. There were Old Testament prophets needed uh, not just to predict the future, but also to lead Israel toward the glide path that would bring the Messiah. And during the first generation of the church, they were apostles and New Testament prophets because you had no written revelation, okay? We know that in the end times, in the seven years leading up to the second advent of Christ, the tribulation, there will be more prophetic activity. But uh, I don't believe that since the completion of the first century in the New Testament, we've had any capital A apostles or capital P prophets. But this is a very uh, needed, dynamic uh, ministry during this time frame. Now, talking about prophets, I always like to say uh, that uh, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, which is a good thing, because Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a non-profit organization, therefore all you're giving is tax deductible. Have you ever heard me say that? Yeah. Now, you know, we talk about the Old Testament prophets. I'm using the pulpit to refer to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So on a timeline, here are the Old Testament prophets, and they're predicting a Messiah. Their prophecies get more and more specific, and they really get quite specific when you look at what they say in light of the cross and the life of Christ. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, when we think about prophecy, uh, I think modern ears, including mine, tend to think about, Nancy, somebody predicting an event, somebody who prophesies as predicting an event. But when you actually analyze the Old Testament prophets in the Scripture, about 90% of what they have, Sherry, are not predicting stuff in the future. It's actually proclaiming not foretelling, but forth telling God's truth to their generation. So uh, that works too for prophets. Prophets were not just given direct divine revelation about stuff that would happen in the future. Agabus predicting the future in a few years down the road. Or Isaiah talking about the crucifixion of Christ in great detail in 700 B.C. before it happens. But also, for the most part... Old Testament prophets, and I would say probably New Testament prophets too, weren't predicting things, they weren't foretelling things, they were foretelling God's truth directly and applying it to their audience or their generation, and that's what a good Bible teacher does. I mean, for me, I'm not trying to impress anybody with my uh, um, uh, pulpit skills as much as I'm just trying to open up the text, let's see what it means in context, let's call that interpretation, and number two, let's talk about what the implications of that meaning is in our lives, let's call that application. So I would say that's a good kind of a way to think about your Bible study. What should your Bible study personally look like? You should read texts in context so by God's grace you can know what it means. Right, Jack? You want to know what it means. That's interpretation. But that's not all. That's just your head. Paul says knowledge puffs up. If you just stop with information, you're just going to be self-righteously prone to criticize people who don't know all the theological terms you do, and that kind of thing. So we need to know what the text means, interpretation, but we also need application. But anyway, we've got this New Testament prophet, Agabus. He's also mentioned in Acts 21, so we'll say more about him later. And he does make a prediction. He predicts that uh, there would certainly be a crisis across the Roman Empire. And uh, let's see how that plays out. Look at verse 28b. This second part of the verse, uh, he predicts it's certainly going to happen. And the last sentence says, Luke is writing this under inspiration, this document we call Acts. And he says, hey, and what do you know? A couple years after this, th- this took place during the reign of Claudius, who was one of the Roman emperors. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, an extra outside of the Bible historian by the name of Josephus, who was a Jewish a uh, historian, not a Christian, although he does refer to Christ and Christians in his histories, uh, describes a serious famine which took place in 46 A.D., which would have been 18 months or a little bit more after this prophecy by uh, by Agabus. Uh, yeah, for a long time, I, I always loved history, and I remember learning about the Roman Empire in school, and I remember you know reading the Gospels even as a little kid in the Bible but I never really put the two together very much. But when you get just historically, uh, just have a list of the Roman emperors in the first century, um, several of them have direct connection with New Testament events. Uh, Augustus Caesar was the Caesar uh, over the government of Rome when Jesus was born, right? In the Luke passage, Luke 2 talks about that, mentions that in passing. Uh, a good question that, you guys ought to have a good answer to is, okay, Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus Caesar, but who was the Caesar doing Jesus' adulthood in his ministry? What are you going to say? i say Tiberius, right? Uh, Caligula is not directly mentioned, but he was really a bad, bad dude. and You've, you've read about him and heard about him. Uh, after Caligula was killed, assassinated, the Praetorian Guard, the Secret Service, uh, nudged Claudius, they thought they could control him. He walked with a limp, and uh, he was kind of a lower level, a big shot in the city of Rome. And so the, uh, I think the Praetorian Guard, the secret service, thought they can control this guy. Uh, he loved the uh, the bloody gladiatorial games. Um, during his reign, for about a year, he banished all Jews from Rome. Uh, he was not a nice guy, but that's a coin with his, a very, let's say, flattering. Uh, you know silhouette of Claudius. Uh, Nero's. I, I put the guys in capitals that are important. New Testament wise. Uh, Claudius was. Claudius died under mysterious circumstances because he was uh, messing around with some other people uh, uh, relationally, and his his wife probably poisoned him with bad mushrooms. So guys, we want to. That's that's the meaning. Okay. It's not about the application. If your wife says, tonight you're going to eat mushrooms, you might want to go down to McDonald's and eat there. I'm just, you know, right? Yeah, but he, he dies under mysterious circumstances. His wife probably poisoned him. And then Nero took over. Nero's important for us because, uh, he started very violent persecution against Christians in and around Rome. And he's the, the emperor who personally had Peter and Paul executed. Uh, then uh, the list goes on. Titus was a general first, and he's the one in 70 AD who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He later became the emperor. And then Domitian's important because according to Irenaeus, who was a second century Christian, the apostle John wrote the book of Revelation toward the end of the reign of Domitian. And that's it's important for some reasons that I won't get into right now. But... Yeah, it's during the reign of Claudius, uh, that this actually took place, and so we got a crisis. Now here's the thing, when you think about prophecy and prophets, you know, there, there are people on cable TV, you know, if you have enough money, you can get your own cable TV, you can get your own radio show easy in the religion business, you know, i tell you that, uh, as Blanche Britton, right? You know, she even let like people like me have radio shows. But, uh, Some of these people today in the hyper-charismatic area want to claim to be prophets or apostles. And I'm very skeptical about those kind of claims. But here's the thing. If you're claiming to be a prophet, you have a very high standard to maintain. Now, we're not under the Old Testament law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe in the New Testament side of the ledger. But if you read, I know James is smiling, in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, there are certain biblical tests for people who claim to be prophets, who claim to be getting direct Divine revelation, not indirect. Thus saith the Lord in context, I believe this means this, applications are these, for me to say, the Lord told me, or the Lord told me that you need to do this. Uh, I've been a pastor for 30-something years, I've had several people claim to be prophets come to me, and they never want to work on their obvious glaring, uh, character flaws, they always want to work on mine. You know, which is kind of suspicious for me, but, uh, here's the thing, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 13 says, If somebody claims to be a prophet and they make predictions and any of their predictions are not 100% fulfilled to the letter, they're a false prophet, kill them. That's under the Old Testament law. Um, Deuteronomy 18 says, if somebody claims to be a prophet and they make prophecies and they come true to the letter, but their teaching leads you away from the clear teaching of the Torah, then capital punishment for them, too. That's Israel under the Old Testament law. So there's a real high standard there. And I really feel like some of these cats that should know better are claiming to be apostles of prophets. It kind of scares me because I know God takes that extremely seriously. We've God has spoken. He has not stuttered. Uh, in the last days, right before the second advent, he'll reinforce that with more prophetic activity. Right now... Uh, God's will is in the Word and wisdom. And uh, if you ask for it, he, he tends to give it to you. Okay, So we've seen the prophecy, a reference to the fulfillment. The point is we got a crisis on the horizon. What are uh, the Christians in Antioch, that's where we're at, going to do about it? Well, you might think they're going to save up a lot of money and food to protect themselves. And I think they do some of that. But look what happens. They're thinking about the mother church, the ship as it were, people who are going to be much worse off than they are when the crisis hits. And in the proportion that any, some of them probably were not in position to chip in on this. Any of the disciples at Antioch had means, each of them who had some expendable money, some money, extra money they could use or goods, each one of them, nobody told them to do it. Each one of them independently made this choice. To be involved, determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in and around Jerusalem, in and around Judea, and they sent the money with uh, Saul and, and Barnabas. Again, we're about 250 miles from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is already in trouble because of the persecution. Uh, they've had several. We had a drought. You remember? We had a drought. And it was bad. I mean, it was really, really major crisis down to 29 percent Warwick Lake. And, you know, ironically, I think the very first night uh, that the consultants came in from out of town and were going to give us the 10-year plan, which was basically run for your life, you know. Uh It started raining and then it didn't stop for like 30 days. And, uh, you know, they told us it'd take at least 10 years to turn it around and God turned it around in you know a month. So... But Jerusalem has been in a crisis. They didn't have a drought, but they they had famines. It might have been related to, obviously, when the rains are coming. They don't get much rain except December and January. That's when it rains in Jerusalem, in and around it. So they've already been in trouble with uh, problems with crops, problems with persecution. And the church in Antioch is very much aware of that. And so their first inclination is, yeah, uh, we're going to go through a period where food... Uh, is going to be at a premium, so we need to take care of ourselves and our kids, but we also want to proactively help those who are going to need extra help, and that would be our friends in Jerusalem. And so it's easy to read through these verses, like no big deal, but this is a huge deal. Uh, in proportion that any, some of them probably didn't have enough left over to, to give to this one, of the disciples there in Antioch had means, each of them, determined to send a contribution to help somebody else who was worse off than they were, the believers in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And they did this, and they did it wisely. Uh, you don't want to give that much money to somebody who might stop you know, in Vegas and try to double it. You know I mean? you got to have somebody who you can depend on to get it there, um, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul. And that's their teaching elders. I mean, somebody's going to have to step out of his comfort zone and teach because Saul and Barnabas aren't going to be in the pulpit during that period. And it's interesting, uh, the next verse after that is what? Chapter 12, verse 1, and you get a big parenthesis, very important about the execution of James, and yet the miraculous deliverance of Peter. But if you go to the very end of chapter 12, you end that parenthesis because they sent this gift, to Jerusalem before the famine hit in charge uh, uh, in the charge of Barnabas and Saul. And then you go to the very last verse of chapter 12 and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem after they went down there and gave them the money when they fulfilled their mission, taking along with them somebody from Jerusalem. His name is John Mark. You know him better as Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the guy who's going to write the gospel we call Mark. And that's the guy who goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and about halfway home, he gets cold feet. No pouting in Puebla. There was some pouting during the first missionary journey by John Mark, and he had to go home to Mom in Jerusalem. He bombs out, and that causes a controversy when they start the second missionary journey. That's more than you need to know right now. Go back to chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. You see a really... A great example of superlative generosity here, but watch this, Jack. The principle is nobody forced any individual in the church to give toward this. Those who had, uh, uh, the, the funds surplus over their needs and their need to protect them, their own family from the coming crisis. Those who had, uh, extra funds to, for that use, uh, for, for any use, they could have, you know, joined Netflix or something with it. They made it a point to take the initiative to contribute to a big pot that we've got at Jerusalem, and I think that leads us up to talking about uh, the difference between New Testament grace giving and tithing. If you look at Second Corinthians uh, chapter nine, and just real quickly, bear with me. Uh, we've we've emphasized that in chapter ten when Peter gets this vision of the tablecloth that comes down three times and it's full of non-kosher food, uh, like catfish and maybe a ham sandwich and stuff that you're not allowed to eat under the Old Testament law, and God tells Peter to eat it, and Peter kind of says, I can't eat that. I eat kosher. I'm a Jew. Don't you understand that? And Peter is a guy who, here's the Old Testament uh, law period. Here's the life of Christ. Peter's living here. He's not under the Old Testament law, but he's still living as if he were. Now he's got the right to do that. You got the spiritual liberty to do that, but you're not obliged to. And God Himself basically says, "Look, I've taken the training, I've taken the training wheels off. Old Testament spirituality has training wheels on it. Now we've got uh, what's a really kind of good, good kind of motorcycle? Harley Davidson? Anybody have motor- uh, who, who drive? You you got a couple of motorcycles, Ben? What's no, uh, who's got a motorcycle out there? Come on, Dan- Danny." What's a good kind of motorcycle? What's a Lexus motorcycle? (laughs) Oh, really? Okay, I don't know that. What is it? Okay, so you, you, you you go from a bicycle with training wheels over here. Now we've got the Christ event, and now we've got a Yamaha, right? What's the number of a really good one? The Yamaha what? What model? A Yamaha V-Star? Okay, so Peter is supposed to get off the bike with the train wheels and get on the Yamaha V-Star, and he's saying, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. And God says, don't worry about it. You know, when I've cleansed, you don't have to do that anymore. So under the Old Testament law, the nation of Israel was put under a tithing system. Now, some of you guys know my mother goes to 7th Street Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, and over the years, I've had a chance to teach down there, uh, and and one time they asked me to to teach, and Brother Mac wanted me to teach on giving. Now Baptists tithe, and most Americans think tithing just means I give ten percent. The real spiritual ones give ten percent before taxes. The uh, people on the fringes give after taxes. To me, I always thought that was fair. They're taking it out of your check. I mean, all you got to do is spend. But that's just me. But they tend to think it's ten percent. So he wanted me to uh, to to preach on uh, giving. And so because we use the term tithing in a sloppy way and assume that applies to New Testament Christians, uh, I wanted to kind of do not a frontal assault, but go around. So what I did was I'm, today I'm going to talk about giving. And of course, our pattern is in the Old Testament tithing system. Everybody's thinking 10 percent, 10 percent, 10 percent. And so. We, sorry. OK, Lord, I, I won't say that. Uh, I was going to say something. I can't say that now, but. uh yeah, um, and the, if you look at the uh, handout, we got the details. I'm not going to go into excruciating detail, but yeah, tithing, tithing, tithing. I talked about that in general, and then I said, let's let's look and see exactly what the Old Testament says about tithing. And everybody's thinking I'm going to say 10%, 10%, 10%. And then we looked at it, and you look at the data. You got a spring tithe every year of 10%, and then on top of that, in the fall, you got another tithe at 10%. So we're up to 20. And then every third year, there's another tithe. And so if you do the math, and I'm not a mathematician, but I am good on 316. Those verses, those numbers I've got down, you know, I don't have pi like James has, but the, it's basically uh, 23.33% if you do it, you know, on, on an average basis every three years. So I, I'm in front of these Baptists and I'm saying, you need a tithe, need to tithe, you need to tithe, let's add it up. Tithing is 23.33 percent, and they look like they swallowed their gum. I mean, I mean, it's one thing to to think you're supposed to give 10 percent, and then just give half of that or whatever you end up giving. But when you realize, yeah, we're all for tithing. We got to give 10 percent. It's not a tithe. It's 23.33 percent. Ah, you know, they were freaking out. And then you know, I said, but here's an interesting thing. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We're under the New Covenant. Uh, ratified by the blood of Christ. And then I read this, and and uh, I read 2 Corinthians 9, which you turned to, and I didn't get there. But, uh, yeah, we're not under the... We don't have the training wheels anymore. Um, we don't have to give 20... There's no set percentage. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, 8, and then I'm going to jump to 15. Each one, as opposed to the tithing system, which was a st- strict tenth in the... Spring, strict tenth in the fall, strict tenth every third year on top of those. Each one, each believer in the New Testament church must do just as he or she has decided in his or her heart. There was no decision-making under the Old Testament law tithing system. It was 10% here, 10% there, 10% every three years. That's it. You know, No questions. Each one must do as he's purposed or she's purposed in her heart, not grudgingly, like you're doing us a big favor, or under compulsion, under pressure or obligation, for God loves a cheerful giver. And guess what? As Jack Smith has said so many times, and he's right, you can't outgive give God. He's going to give you what you need despite whatever you give away to be and do what He wants you to do anyway. You might not get a yacht, but you might not get a Yamaha, whatever you said, you might end up with a bicycle, but you're know, going to be able to get around. Uh, God's able, he, he, He's not going to let you miss anything you were supposed to get because you gave too much to the kingdom. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance in every good deed. You know, the Mitchells have felt led to adopt from Haiti. And uh, it's expensive to adopt children under any circumstances, but they're trusting God to provide. And they're already, already raising two world-class kids. And Jack, you know, they're spending a lot of money on you, guy. I mean, come on. Uh, you got to appreciate that. But they're just believing God's going to give them the funds to do that. If he's calling them to do that, they believe he is, and they're seeing that happen, right? Uh, but God's able, no matter what you give to the kingdom, to give you what you need so you can continue doing and giving what you need to give to the kingdom. So they're always having all sufficiency, everything you need, not necessarily everything you want, in everything you may have abundance and every good deed. And then look at verse 15. He actually talks about giving for uh, two chapters, all of eight and all of nine. But uh, this is the heart of it. And he says... At the end of this exhortation to give and give the right way, he says, "Thanks be to God for His gift, His indescribable gift. We give because we've been given so much in Christ." Right? And when you're focusing on that, then you don't, you're not impressed by how much you give. But here's the thing: in a nutshell, albeit a coconut shell, not a peanut shell. Uh, Old Testament tithing is mandatory for every family in the nation of Israel. It adds up to 23.33%. New Testament grace giving. Is it okay if I use the term free will? Would that be okay, James? He's, he used to be a free will Baptist before we straightened him out. I'm still working on it. New Testament grace giving is voluntary, no set percentage, and it's for all believers in Christ slash His capital C church. Each one must do as she or he has purposed in his or her heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Is giving willingly and happily. Now, I won't read this to you now, but if you look at your handout, you've got a kind of a little uh, kind of schematic uh, uh, spread out of the way the Old Testament tithing system works. And uh, in response to that, New Testament proportional slash grace giving, you see that. And then on the next page, you've got something I adapted from Bible.org, which is really a nice website, a lot of good information and it deals uh, first with the Old Testament tithe on the bottom. It kind of gives you the passages and breaks down the three tithes. And then uh, it has, uh, to whom should New Testament believers give? And I thought that would be a good thing to, to mention in passing. Uh, even as a little kid, I just assumed that uh, we had this, the Lottie Moon offering, and then Birmingham, I was a Southern Baptist. So I'm a recovering Southern Baptist, you know, it doesn't, doesn't bother me a bit, you know. But yeah, we had the, the Lottie Moon offering, which was a big deal, and we all kind of saved our lunch money for missions in December, and we gave to that. And that Lottie Moon uh, was a great uh, foreign missionary, and they've done a lot of great things with that with that uh, financial support. And in Birmingham, uh, it was called uh, Shays Mountain Baptist Church, uh, which is where I went to, kind of as a middle school kid when I could get my mother to to drop me off, uh, which was when I was possible. Uh, we had an honor offering every, every summer. And it was to honor, uh, I think the birthday of the church. And that's when I started mowing grass for a living because I really wanted to earn some money and, and give it to that. So we really psyched up about that and I think God certainly honors stuff like that. But I always just felt like, golly, I mean, of course today, you know, your pastor may be a guy on the screen you're never gonna know. He's not coming to your hospital visits. He's not coming to your surgeries. He's not, doesn't know your name. But we do know he needs your money, so send it, you know. But uh seems like if you're in a local church where you actually know people and you kind of can touch the pastor, and you can't, don't touch me too much because I'm working on the plastic surgery thing and I don't want to mess it up. But uh, uh, it seems to me we should give our lion's share to the church, and I said that before I was an employee of the local church. Um, and also, if you look at our, don't look now necessarily, but in the bulletin we have a list of foreign missions. Uh, many of the first people on that list, the first five or six of them, Ron can tell you the exact details if you want to know, and they're not secret, but like uh, the Ebersoles or um, Brent Corbin, his campus minister in Tulsa. Uh, by giving to TBF, you're helping us to give to them because we support like six or seven of those folks as a church. So I, I think that, yeah, if this is your church, wherever you go to church in Comanche, that should be where the lion's share you're giving goes. But I think it's also important to give to others, and Debbie and I have always done that. Uh, we should give to other biblically credible organizations and individuals, like Mike Duffy we give to, uh, Brent we give to, Jason Morris we give to. We can't have too many people grow up in Tulsa and uh, Tanglewood and go to missions and stuff because we can't keep giving. You know, We're running out of money here just giving to all these people who are doing stuff. Uh, but we're happy to do that, right? Jets, I give to Jets, you know, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. I wish give the fellow believers in need. That's what's happening here, right? Antioch Bible Fellowship, Shelby, any Bible Fellowship is sending money to Jerusalem because they realize they've got it bad already before this famine hits. They're already scrambling to have enough money to, to eat. When, the, when it becomes you know, $100 for a loaf of bread, it's going to really be bad for them. And then also, unbelievers in need. Sometimes you hear Christians say, the Red Cross, the United Way, those are secular organizations. Yeah, but they're trying to do good in a dark world. And to the extent uh, you feel led, um, I mean, I give the United Way. Uh, I don't give it the Red Cross, but I could. You know, I don't have a theological objection to it or whatever like that. So that's what I would say about that. Here's the happy ending, because we're at the end. Uh, Agabus predicts a serious uh, empire-wide famine It's going to really affect the folks in Jerusalem. Folks in Antioch are aware of that. I'm sure they're taking doing due diligence to take care of their own families, and they should. What does Scripture say? If you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever, pragmatically. Because even unbelievers know the kids need to eat, they need shoes, they need school clothes, etc. So don't be so spiritual you don't protect your own first, of course, based on boundaries and priorities. But also, any Bible Fellowship proactively gives for Jerusalem and Judea because they know they're going to have it much worse down there, okay? So we've been talking about this superlative uh, generosity uh, in Antioch for the folks in and around Jerusalem, and we've been talking about financial giving God's way. Uh, we're not under the Old Testament tithing system. And Michelle, aren't you glad? Because you thought it was 10%, but it's actually 23.33%. And I've, I've heard preachers say, well, you know, 10% is a good place to start, but uh, I've always felt like, in addition to the freedom we've got, to decide how best to manage our funds so we can give as much as we can to the kingdom, however we break that down, I always felt like uh, we're not under a set percentage. And for some of us, giving 10% would be like giving away tip money. And for others, giving 10%, based on the, the thing I've heard preachers say, it's a good place to start. Uh, I just don't buy that. Uh People I really admire are some of these single moms out there. Maybe they made bad choices with their men or whatever they did. But here they are, especially if they come to faith. They got a kid or two or three and, and running, sitting home, waiting for checks. They're working in a convenience store and working at daycare and they're working two jobs and doing the best they can. And let's say they bring home a thousand dollars a month and they got two kids to take care of. You know what? You know, just a, a just a, Naked ten percent of that, so they're now they're down to nine hundred dollars a month. They may not be able to make ends meet on a thousand dollars a month. They may not be able to give anything. Uh, I would I would always give something give five dollars give ten dollars, but just to teach your kids about giving. But I would not want to put a person like that under some false guilt because they don't give ten percent because that's a good place to start. Whether or not we're under ten percent tithing or not, it's actually twenty three point three three percent. On the other hand, I always felt like the more you make the more you're able to give. And, um, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, for me, like teaching at Cameron, uh, my, my joke about teaching at Cameron as an adjunct is, if you're smart enough to be an adjunct at Cameron University, you ought to be smart enough not to do it for what they pay you. But I always felt like that has given us the chance to do some stuff under the radar to, to help people that, you know, uh, just need help and stuff like that, and do other things like that. So I always felt, and not, I don't give it all away, but I, I you know we give more than we'd be able to otherwise. And I can just, uh, I look around this room, one thing I wanted to say, and I forgot as I was introducing the mission report is, uh, Tomas asked us uh, toward the end, he was kind of saying, wow, you know, you've been coming since 91, and I think he was really happy with the team this year. and He, he likes them all, but, you know, we had a lot of rookies, and He's kind of saying, "Hey, how did how are you able to get so many different TBFers to come down here?" And I, like, you know, he's a good Baptist still, so he's thinking, "I've got some kind of guilt-based system, you know, or something." I'm not sure what he was thinking, but I said, "No, I do essentially no promotion. I kind of put it in the bulletin early in the year. We pray about it. I talk about it once or twice. I don't do a big recruitment because I don't want to force somebody to come if they don't want to come. I just leave it up to the Spirit. Some years it's been three, and some years it's been 13, and it's usually a little bit more than three, but." Who knows? But he kind of marveled at that, and I would just say to you guys, uh, you know, I don't know who gives what to the church, especially to the pueblo fund, but it's just phenomenal uh, that every spring Ron will come into my office. He's the treasurer, and he'll say, "Hey, the pueblo fund up to three thousand dollars now." I said, "Really? I mean, I can't believe it. Uh, I've said nothing about pueblo fund." Uh, and they really almost never do, uh, and it just shows up, boom, boom, boom. And that's nice because we just divide it evenly to the people, and they've got less to, to pay off. Uh, uh, you know, and it's just it's it's no frills stuff. I mean, we're not uh, charging them a thousand dollars, and it really costs seven hundred, so we're making three hundred dollars on the slide. Uh, you know, we've got what airfare and hotel, and that's basically in a gift to the church, and that's that's what the Pueblo fund needs to to pay for and it pays for most of it almost every time so that's really phenomenal but I look around this room and uh, man, I don't know what Homer and Pam give but I've seen their heart and I've seen their own personal generosity with a lot of people including me and I know they they give more than their share whether they're up to 23.33% I don't know but that'd be a good goal for you to shoot at just you know, <laughs> let you know, you know if you want to get self-righteous about your giving you better give at least 23.33% right? But uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. This, I'm not bragging. There's nothing wrong with offering plates necessarily. Although personally, I can't see an offering plate go by without putting something in it, whether I want to or not. It's just me. But uh, we don't pass an offering plate here. Never have. And yet, we've always had more than enough money to do the ministry we need to do. You know. Uh, and yeah, uh, you know, I kind of at one level I marvel at that. And a lot of the time I just take it for granted because it's always the way it's been. But that's because of an ongoing work in the hearts of the people in this congregation uh, that nobody sees but God and, uh, and the treasurer. And he knows who you are if you're not giving enough, you know. So he sees you when you're sleeping and stuff, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but I remember, I like what uh, Paul says at the end of his uh, presentation of New Testament grace giving, Second Corinthians 8 and 9. He says, hey, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We give because we've been given so much, and you all know we're not saved by giving money or being baptized or being part of a church. We're saved by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, and a perfect Savior. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that means we not only break God's standards, we break our own at times, at our worst. We all break our own standards, much less God's. Uh, The wages of sin is separation. Death is always separation, not extinction. But the gift of God, what is it, Elliot, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the black background against which the good news of the gospel must be projected is we've all violated God's standards and he has cause to punish us. And He can't just ignore that because he's infinitely holy. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, unable to do anything, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us, because on the cross he died for all of James's sins and rose again, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So if you've never received the gift of salvation don't worry about giving us any money or giving us anything. We've got something to give to you, or God's got something to give to you. It's the free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ alone. In Mexico, the existing church there, uh, for the most part, has shrouded the grace of God with a lot of ritual, and in some cases superstition and mysticism, and it's very hard to see it, uh, and most of them miss it because of that fuzziness that's been added over the centuries, last 500 years. But the bottom line is John 3:16. For God the Father loved the world full of sinners like all of us so much He sent His Son, the God-Man Savior, who died and paid our debt and rose again. That whosoever believeth in Him, saving faith is active, receptive trust, not just mental assent, but full consent of the will. Or Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. And I can't fix it, but I believe you can because you died for my sins and rose again and I trust you alone as my Savior. And that's how you enter the kingdom of God. For most of us who are believers, we've been given so much, we ought to be motivated by God's indescribable gift, not just to work hard and provide for our families, but to give back to the kingdom in concerted ways. And that would include financial giving as well. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to give back. You don't need my money to accomplish your purpose. You don't need any of the money of anybody in this congregation today or anybody on this planet to accomplish your work. But you allow us to contribute with our blood, sweat, and tears, with our time, talent, treasure. You allow us to get between the lines and shoot some baskets and score some baskets for the kingdom that's going to That's eventually and inevitably will win. And so we thank you for that wonderful privilege. We thank you for the privilege and the obligation it is to be on the New Testament side of the ledger, free will, proportional grace giving, where we decide what's the most we can give where we are. If we're a single mom clearing $900 a month after taxes with three kids, it may be $5 a month. For some of us, it would be much higher than that. And it would not just be the local church. It would be other things, too, that you're doing. I thank you for the privilege it is to uh, be able to contribute. Uh, and I thank you for these who have contributed and invested some time. The very first significant thing they've done is you've given us this new week is to be here or to be in other churches all over this uh, uh, globe today to celebrate the risen Christ and encourage one another. And we thank you for the privilege and the freedom we have to do that.